Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of Enroute Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Purified by Fire. I am David Cease, and this is the Spiritual Culture Show to help you find peace, love, and joy in family and work life sanctifying the world one soul at a time. We are here each and every week to help you grow spiritually, to become successful in this life, and to be a saint for the life after. No matter how broken you may be, God is calling you to greatness that only you can fulfill. So come join us and see how he may be calling you. Okay, hello everyone. This is David um, at the Fairfax Studio right now. So um, today's topic is a continuation of self-esteem, which we talked about last Friday. Last week I discussed the importance of self-esteem, what causes poor self-esteem, which is the lack of knowing who we are and trying to define who we are through worldly endeavors, and some pitfalls that causes poor self-esteem amongst Catholics. Today is part two and we are going to discuss how to improve self-esteem from a Christian point of view. Part of improving our self-esteem is to answer these four questions. What is love? There is so much talk about what love is. The world gives us only worldly, selfish love. But let's understand what the church says about this. Number two, who am I? It's ironic that so many people do not know who they are. They keep searching or trying to build something they want to be rather than just being who they are. That is called being genuine as opposed to being fake. Three, what am I worth? Now that we know who we are, we need to understand our worth. We all have worth. And question number four, do I really believe that? That is the fundamental question. That is the secret of building self-esteem is really, do I believe what the Catholic Church teaches me? So, before we, I begin with my story, I'd like to open up with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Lord, we come together um, with Purified by Fire. We pray that our self-esteem might be uh, brought forth to know who we are, to grow in that person that you are calling us to be. Um, we pray that people's hearts be touched today. Let us pray. O God, who through the folly of the cross wondrously taught St. Justin, the martyr, the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, grant us through his intercession that having rejected deception and error, we may become steadfast in the faith. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A while ago, um, <clears throat> this was probably about two years ago. My daughter was about, um, I would say 12, maybe going on 13. She kept constantly asking us, you know, it would be to me or to my, my wife. She would say, Daddy or Mommy, do you love me? And, you know, we would say, yes, we love you, honey. And then and this would continue and continue for days and days and days. And not just once a day, but several times a day. So finally it dawned on me that to ask her, to ask herself, do you love yourself? 
<clears throat> so when she came up to me, she said, Daddy, do you love me? I looked at her and I said, Honey, I love you. But let me ask you a question. And she said, What? I said, Me, at least. Uh, do you love yourself? And she said, I guess so. And I said, What do you mean you guess so? I said, You have to love yourself. This is, you know, you're a child of God. You're so lovable. So love yourself. And for at least a couple of days, she stopped asking me, at least, um, that question. But it's fundamentally when people ask, do you love me? Inherently, they're really asking themselves, do I really love myself? They're asking a sense of approval from someone else so that they can love themselves, as opposed to loving themselves and then from there loving other people. So, <clears throat> that's a great point and a great story to pinpoint that children, you know, they, they, they want to be loved and they seek it out of their parents. But it doesn't come out that they have to first learn to love themselves. And we're going to learn about how to do that. So the first is to answer this question, what is love? All right, to have good self-esteem, you must love yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So how... Uh, but, but what is love? The world and even the devil will give you the idea that love is this selfish need. But Pope Benedict XVI wrote an encyclical, it was his first encyclical in his pontificate, called Deus Caritas Est. It's my, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, which is translated, God is love. I remember the first time I heard that, and, and not first time I heard that, because I've probably heard it many a times, but when I first realized what that meant, it gave me nothing but joy, and it still gives me nothing but joy, that God is love. Think about it. God is love. All right? Not anything here in our world, not anything, but God is love. So we know the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. You know, and St. Paul says that the greatest is love. Well, why? Because love is the only theological virtue that is the ends and the means. Okay? Love is the only theological virtue that we will have when we all die. So, for example, when we die, we don't need hope anymore because we achieved what we hope for, which is hopefully heaven. We don't need faith because faith is something that we have to believe in that is unseen. Well, hopefully when we're in heaven, we're going to have the beatific vision. So those fade away. They're just a means for us to get to heaven, faith, hope, and love. Love is also a means to get us to heaven, but it's also the ends. Because when we die, love doesn't just die with us like hope and faith because we don't need them anymore. But love will continue to be with us until there because God is love, and that is our ultimate end is love itself, which is God. So, if we understand that God is love, then he happens to be the source of all love. Okay? So, in his encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, in the first several chapters, he describes two terms that we must understand. Okay? One is called eros. Eros is what he defines as a, uh, an ascending uh, love or a covetous type love, okay, love that you were kind of actually possessive. We want to have this, 
okay? It's in essence a selfish kind of love. It's the love that we want. But what's ironic about the word eros is that it's used in, in the same way. Right? It was word as erotic. It has a sexual connotation. Okay? That's what it has. And yet, Pope Benedict XVI is clarifying that eros is not a sexual connotation. The reason why it has a sexual connotation was because in the olden days, eros was um, tied to the temple prostitutes. All right? It was almost like a way to connect with God through a sexual, what he calls a sexual um, frenzy. And that's why they had so many fertility gods in the olden days and temple prostitutes. Okay? And then Eros in the modern day has been hijacked to represent you know, erotic sex in pornography or even just in uh, fornication and other sexual areas. But the true definition of Eros is the idea we really need to receive love. We need to receive love. And the key to Eros is not receiving love through other human beings or anything here on earth, but actually receiving love from God because he is the source of all love. Everything here on earth is finite. Okay? It's finite. We have an infinite capacity of love, and the only thing that can cure that infinite capacity of love is God itself, the source, the infinite source of love. And so what we try to do is we try to pack it in with finite love, humanistic love, that will eventually die or fade away or we get tired of it. So that's what happens. Okay? So that's one. The second word he describes is agape. That's the, that is the descending or ablative love or an offering or giving up of love. So if you were to look at love, God is the source of love that we receive, that warms us up, that brings us to love itself, and then we give it out through agape love. Now, the Eucharist, and the reason why agape is tied to the Eucharist is because the Eucharist represents the intersection between the love of God and love of human beings. That's why. It's where the cross meets. So ultimately, we are to find Eros love, the selfish love from God, and give it out in agape love to others. And so here lies the two fundamental problems that we have with self-esteem as well as in the world of love, which is Eros, which is based on worldly finite objects, love that is based on worldly finite objects, okay? People who are seeking, trying to seek love through sex, through uh, other people, um, it's finite. You know, uh, we try to love, you know, try to find love in our children, and um, if they should die, we get all angry and bitter, uh, or through our husband, and if they wind up not, you know, being good or behaving the way we want to, we get all angry and bitter. So, true love, eros love, comes from God. And the second agape is when you don't have true eros love, love from God, then you can't give what you don't have. So we try to love other people, but it's so limited. And then we get frustrated and angry. And that's what happens. But when we really, really have the Eros love, which is the love of God, then we can have a more good 
agape love, and that's love of others. Today we're talking about self-esteem, so we're going to be focusing more on the eros love, the love between God and man, between God and us. Okay? Agape love will be for something else, because that's when we, when we have that type of love, we will then be able to share it to others. So we're going to get that eros love, and that's where we're going to base our self-esteem off of, that uh, eros love between God and man. I want to read you an excerpt from uh, Deus Caritas S that explains this very well. This is Pope Benedict XVI, his encyclical. In the account of Jacob's Ladder, the fathers of the church saw this inseparable connection between ascending and descending love, between Eros, which seeks God, and Agape, which passes on the gift received, symbolized in various ways. In that biblical passage, we read how the patriarch Jacob saw in a dream above the stone, which was his pillow, a ladder reaching up to heaven on which the angels of God were ascending and descending. So what, what Benedict XVI is saying is um, the, the vision of Jacob's ladder, where he's seeing angels ascending and descending on this ladder, is exactly this expression of eros and agape love. The ascending uh, angels represent the eros love, the love between God and man, and the descending represents the agape love, which is the spreading of, of love. He then continues to say, and this is very key, a particularly striking interpretation of this vision is presented by Pope Gregory the Great in his pastoral rule. So he had a, he had a rule called pastoral rule, and he says this. This is what Pope Gregory is saying. He tells us that the good pastor, this is what makes you a good pastor, must be rooted in contemplation. Contemplation, we're going to talk about uh, uh, meditation, uh, which is a, a different form, uh, uh, you know, uh, which is kind of similar to contemplation, but a little bit different. Um, yeah, but we're going to see similarities of it. Um, but meditation, that's, and that's going to give us the root of that love between God and man. Only this way will he be able to take upon himself the needs of others and make them his own. So in other words, what Pope Gregory the Great is saying is we have to be rooted in contemplation, or another word, meditation, okay? So, because that's what's going to get us connected with God, and once we do that, then we will be able to love others in fulfilling the needs of our vocation, okay? So, that's, that's how it is. And that's going to summarize, really, the self-esteem-based, uh, what we're going to do. So this understanding of love, okay, that we are kind of like in, caught in the middle of this. God is a source of love, which we receive from him, that blows our heart up. And through that love we, and growing of love, we then can share that with others. And God's love is infinite and great. So there's nothing here on earth that would ever tap us from that love. But if we, don't, if we block that source of love from God, then we really don't have as much love to give to others. Because you can't give what you really don't have. Okay? So that's love. Now the next thing we have to ask ourselves to create this great part, uh, this, this, this self-esteem is, who am I? Who am I? Okay, that's the question. So many people that I meet through business, through work and everything, I can tell deep down inside 
they do not know who they are. And so they behave in a certain way. I don't know how many people read these books on how to behave, how to be this, how to do that, because they don't know who they are. Even Catholics, even Catholics who think they're a good guy, I mean, they, they, they might be or whatever, but they're reading these books. And their whole behavior are based off these books. You know, good to great, um, seven of, uh, uh, habits of effective leadership, all these things. And they're good in nature. You know, they have good wisdom, but they're frail in defining who we are because they point to us to more of the secular world as opposed to elevating us and t- showing us who we truly are, which is this great child of God. So I want to read you uh, the first letter of John. John is probably my favorite gospel writer, um, as well as his letters are perfect, are the greatest. Okay, um, read it. First letter of John, has every, that whole letter is just chock full of greatness. But he has my second favorite line in the Bible, and, it, and it's this. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Listen to that. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That, if you realize that, that we are truly children of God, okay? Yes, by adoption, not by um, uh, essence, like, like Jesus is. Jesus was uh, created, I mean, not, I'm sorry, not created. He was, um, uh, you know, an essence of one with, with the Father, okay? Um, but we are adopted. But here's the thing. God's Word is so effective that when He says something, it actually happens. And I'll give you an example. I'm adopted. I'm Korean. I, am, I have Asian features. I have black hair. My eyes are slanted. I have brown skin, um, somewhat rounded face. I'm five foot five. But my parents who adopted me, my mother's five foot nine. You know, um, she used to have blonde hair, um, or dirty blonde hair. She uh, is uh, five foot nine, white, round. You know, not squinted eyes. My father's German. You know, he used to have dirty blonde hair, six feet tall, um, you know, uh, white. When they adopted me, okay, I didn't become white, you know, with dirty blonde hair, okay. I still kept being Asian. Okay? That's the limitness. But they still love me as a son in their family, and they treat me as a member of that family. But God's word is so much more powerful that when he says, you are my son or daughter, you actually become, it would be like me turning white and dirty blonde hair and six feet tall, like my brother, okay? That's what God does. He doesn't just make me still brown. His word would make me. So that's what's the beauty, is that we are truly his son. Now, what does that mean, Okay? What does that mean to be a child of God? Oh my goodness. You know, I think it was Scott Hahn once said that if we truly understood and fathomed that we were a child of God, we would be partying 
the rest of our lives. We would have one big party. We'd be celebrating for the rest of our lives. That in itself, you know, it brings me such joy when I read that to say, I am a child of God. I'll tell you a little story. The, my daughter, when she was in second grade, I believe first or second grade, um, I was able to come into her classroom. It was a Catholic school at the time. And we, um, you know, I went in, and there was about 30 kids, maybe like 25 to 30 kids in there. And they were all first or second graders. And the first thing I told these kids is I said to, to them that Elizabeth, this is my daughter, and I are from a royal family. And all these kids were like, really? It's like, yes, we are from a royal family. And Elizabeth and I, Elizabeth is a princess, and I am a prince. They're like, really? So yes, we come from a royal family, and we are prince and princess. And I said, let me show you our mother, who's the queen. And I showed them a statue of Our Lady. Then I said, because we're prince, then we have an older brother who's the king. Let me show you a picture of our king. And I showed him a picture of the divine mercy, a picture of the divine mercy of Jesus. That's the reality. We are royalty. We are part of this great kingdom that our mother is the queen and our brother is the king and we are royalty prince and princesses what else we are destined for greatness if you don't think going to heaven is not great there's something then there's something seriously wrong okay imagine never working again imagine you had all the money you want Imagine being purely happy and joyous for the rest of your life. Because what makes things makes you happy here on earth all comes from God, who is a source of all happiness and joy. Okay? The other is that by being a child of God, we have become deified. Yes. Deified. We are gods. A lot of people don't realize that. When we are baptized, we are deified. We become gods. All right? One great thing says best, God became man so man can become gods. We are inside the Holy Trinity. Okay? That's what we are. If, if we truly believed it, we'd be partying again for the rest of our lives. The other element of this being a child of God is God who is the source of all love. Do you not think he does not love his children? I'm an earthly father. And I remember the first time I held my every single one of my children. I remember holding them. And I had this great sense of joy, great sense of love. Every single one of them, I said, I am your father. I will be here. I will protect you. And I love you. Do you not think that when my, my kids get sick, that it does not hurt me, that I do not want to help them? If me, who is a sinful father, who is not the, an imperfect at loving, is like that, how much greater is it God the Father? 
This is how much you are loved because you are a child of God. And what made you a child of God is very simple. Baptism. Right? There's nothing you needed to do. Right? Just be baptized. That was it. And when you were a child, that's what your parents did. When you're an adult, yes, you have to go through RCIA. But just simple baptism. And you say, well, how can a simple water do that? Well, you look at birth. What, what made my children be part of my family? Birth. They were just born into my family. And from then on, I love them as my son and daughter. That's what it is. So you are a child of God, which means you're royalty. You're destined for greatness. You're lovable regardless of your sin. Um, you are a god. You are deified at that time. People don't realize that. You are a god. This is why Satan, who is the highest of the angels, he's called Lucifer, bearer of light, because he was so powerful that he actually bore God before he fell. And this is why we can defeat him. We can defeat every devil because we are deified. We are greater than the angels. Think about that. We are greater than the angels who are very powerful here on earth. But when we commit mortal sin, and we sever ourselves from God, then we are less than angels, including the devils. And that's when he has dominion over us. So we are deified. This is who you are. You know? That's, if you just knew that, you would know there's nothing you need to prove. There's nothing that you need to acquire here on earth. This is why if you look at Franciscans and people who live in continents, they just want to live here on earth and not commit sin and pray and glorify God and pray for others. Because nothing else matters. Just God and knowing you're his child. And we contemplate that for the rest of our lives, it will be great and perfect. So, Summing up, you know, as a, if, I always like to understand relationships, right? So from God the Father, we're his son or daughter. From God the Son, Jesus, we, we are in some ways his bride, the church, right? Um, which he is the groom, willing to die for us. And also he's our brother, and we are his brothers and sisters to him. He's our older brother. For the Holy Spirit. We are the temple in which we reside. We become incorporated in the Trinity. Think about it. We're like a mini little church. We're like a mini little tabernacle. You know, we genuflect at the tabernacle, but we're like a little tabernacle because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And so we don't you know, destroy a church or profane a church, so we do not do that to ourselves. So that's what we are. The Holy Spirit deifying us because of his indwelling. And Fourth is Our Lady, the greatest of all saints, and the Mother of God. She is also our mother. And so we are sons and daughters of Our Lady, who Jesus is willing to share to us. So that is so important to understand, the value in which we are. Who are we? We're a child of God. I want to finish reading St. John's letter. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He as he is, and everyone who who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Think about that. We are God's children now, and Saint John is saying it might not appear like that, right? We might not appear to be like Jesus or appear to be like uh, a child of God. But if you keep yourself pure, one day we're going to see Jesus and we're going to appear just like he appears. And we shall see him as he is, sees us. We're going to mimic him. So that's what being a child of God is all about. So the next question we have to ask our, my, ourselves is this. What am I worth? Okay, you tell me all this, but what am I truly worth? I want to um, talk about a story, okay? The story was uh, I went to a, a church um, in my uh, old neighborhood when I grew up in, in New Jersey, and there was a priest there. He had a, a pretty wonderful homily, and um, he held up. He basically brought up this child. I think she was probably about four or five years old, you know, blonde hair, just the cutest little child you could ever think of. I mean, just very, very uh, innocent, uh, pure, um, and very, very, um, you know, uh, cute girl. And he says in his homily, he says, the congregation, what is this child worth? Tell me, is she worth a million? Is she worth $2 million? Is she worth $3 million? $10 million, a billion, a zillion. And no one raised their hands. Because ultimately, deep down inside, we know that she is worth. She's priceless. All the money in the universe would not suffice for her. That's what she's worth. If we think about it, okay, that every soul, not just that girl, little girl's soul, but you, me, that is what we're worth. Nothing in the universe. If you were to sum up all the gold, silver, whatever it is, diamonds in the universe, that's, that wouldn't even compare the price of you. Why? Because of this. As a business owner, we always have to put a price tag on our services. And the hardest thing to find out is what is that price? Okay? Um, as an intellectual property, uh, you know, there's nothing that absolutely says that this price can be this. As a capitalistic society, I can make the price that I want. But we follow this rule in capitalistic society called supply and demand. Ultimately, if you have a high demand that could be facilitated by the supply, then you can raise your prices. Um, I have a friend of mine. He's a lawyer. He's a corporate lawyer. He makes $800 an hour. Okay? $800 an hour because he's in such demand. I don't make that much kind of money. 
but that's what he does. All right? So his worth is $800 an hour. Mine, probably $150 to $200 an hour. Okay? So the demand is based on, you know, is, is the demand. Who wants you? Okay? If that demand is very high, then you can ask for a big price, which means that your worth of that product or service is high. Now let's talk about that. Who is the one who's demanding us, who wants us? And how much is this person willing to pay for? Okay? That is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And I'm going to read you. Again, this is from First Letters John. Okay? It's, it's basically the same, same chapter, but different verse. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Ten. Okay? This is, you know, God sent his only begotten son. Not to condemn us, but to save us. Okay? But listen to this from St. John. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. So, going back to the definition of what we're worth. It's the demand. The higher the demand, okay, the greater the price that you can, you can charge. And how much are we worth? Well, the demand is infinite because who wants us is an infinite God his demand is so much he wants us his want and desire is infinite and the price that we got that he's paying willing to pay to have you and me is his son and his shedding of his blood which one drop of Jesus' blood could is far more. One drop is far more than if you were to get all the gold and silver and diamonds in the whole universe. One drop is far more worth than that. Yet he shed his blood, not just a drop. It was just enough to have a thorn prick his head. But he shed pints of it, most likely all of it. So that's how much you're worth. That is how much you're worth. So the demand is infinite, and the price that he paid is infinite. And the price that he paid, just look at the cross. So... 
John explains that. This is how much you're worth. This is it. This is, you know, if, if, you, if you can't see that, that's, that's a, you know, a really, really uh, hard to, um, you know, how can I say this? That you must be hard of heart, you know, honestly, because that's what you're worth. So your self-esteem is worth on that. And it's not based off of the idea that you're a great piano player or you're a great entrepreneur or you're a millionaire. He doesn't care about that. What he cares about is you, just like I care about my children. You know, my children, you know, every, everyone's like, Daddy, you know, I got straight A's or Daddy, I got, you know, um, you know I did well at the ping pong table or tennis tennis or whatever, whatever. And I say, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. But that doesn't, you know, define who they are. If they weren't a great tennis player or they weren't a great musician or they didn't get it, I'm still going to love them. I'm going to love them to the day they die and beyond. So that's the same way God does. And God loves you. That's what you're worth. Look at the cross. Next time you have low self-esteem, look at the cross. He died for you. Just who you are. A child of God. Now, the key to self-esteem, this is the key, is do I really believe that? <clears throat> do I, I've met so many Catholics who, again, um, note this. This isn't something that, you know, is foreign. You know, oh, I'm a child of God. Yeah, that doesn't make me a child of God. And they know all these theologies. But do they really believe it? And the answer is no, because their behaviors don't reflect that. That's what I see. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that I'm a child of God? Do I really believe that I am loved by an all-powerful, all-knowing God? Even though he knows all my sins, even though he knows all of what I'm thinking, and they might be evil or bad, God still loves me. Do I really believe that my life is worth more than an infinite God willing to shed his blood for me? Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that an infinite God is willing to shed his blood for me? That's what he did. No other religion says that. No other religion says, you know, I'm going to come and die for you. All religions talk about power. Oh, I'm going to fight other people. I'm going to be this great warrior. You know, Zeus, this powerful God. But it's only our God that says, I will die for you. This is why it was such a stumbling block for Jews and a um, ridicule for pagans. Because pagans are like, what kind of God would die for you? Our gods are powerful. Our gods are going to kick butt. And you come Christianity that says your God is this wimpy God that's willing to die for you. It's like, yes. Because 
he knows that's how much that was the price to pay so we do but do we really believe that it's not just an assent to the truth oh yeah I know God he died for me on the cross blah 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 right when I speak to the Catholics who know this teaching and and, and the, you know they could spout theology like there's no tomorrow, but when you look at their actions, their actions are worldly. They're practical atheists. They read a lot of books about you know uh, worldly things. They're trying to strive to become something, okay? Or conversely, I've seen people who go into the wimpy stage where they're just wimpy. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do this. They ultimately use basically what religion becomes to them is either a crutch, worldly advancement, or prestige. That's basically what they're doing. It's just a religion for them as opposed to a being, as opposed to who I am. Okay? And they're just using religion as a crutch or as a worldly advancement or prestige. A crutch in a sense that, you know, every time I don't I fail at the world, I come back and I start crying to God or going to church or doing some kind of, you know, um, novena or something like that. Or worldly advancements. It's a good way of networking. It's the Catholic club, you know. It's the, you know, I'm in the elite group here of a traditionalist or, or whatever it is, you know, or prestige. Yes, um, I'm a, a religious, or I'm whatever, or I'm a priest, or, or I mean, or, or I'm in with the, the uh, theological aspect of it, as opposed to life-altering, you know, faith that allows you to say, "I am a child of God." There is nothing out there in the world that I should be afraid of. John Paul II said that in his pontificate: "Be not afraid," and we are. We're afraid. We're afraid. Afraid of failure. Afraid of, oh, what's going on? We are afraid because we haven't tapped into the idea that we're our child of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to be, you know, uh, yelling and screaming at people who aren't Catholic. No, that's not what it is. It means that we should be shining our light and our love through seeking holiness, being patient, kind, gentle, all these things. And also seeking justice, defending life, you know, defending um, uh, against euthanasia. These are all these things. Having a family, trusting in God, that's what it is. So, how do I make it real then? How do I internalize and build my self-esteem? And the key is meditation. This is the key. Okay? The key is meditation. Now, <clears throat> there is contemplation, which is something different. We're going to focus on meditation. Okay? Meditation. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of debate, and this isn't, you know, defeat A or anything like that, on the importance of meditation. But a lot of great saints will say that meditation is a requirement 
for salvation. I'll say that. Okay? Not because meditation of in itself saves. We know that. I mean, you know, the grace saves us, right? But meditation is a vehicle in which we become closer to God. Okay? This is where people fail. All right, and I'm going to go back into a couple of things here, okay? So one of the things that I say a lot, and I got this from um, a Franciscan, um, one of my Franciscan priests. He said, sanctification of the mind begins the sanctification of the heart, okay? Sanctification of the mind begins the sanctification of the heart. In other words, when we sanctify the mind through spiritual reading, that will start the sanctification of the heart. But a lot of times people read and it gets just there in the head and it never gets to the heart. Okay? That's where meditation takes it from the head to the heart. All right? That's very important to understand. It takes it from the head to the heart. So if you don't do meditation, then all it is is theological, heavy understanding of God. Of, of God. And it will never reach the heart. Okay? So that's where meditation is important. All right? So the key to take is, is the mind. Okay. So, so we have to sanctify the mind through spiritual reading and prayers and everything that we do mechanically to get it into our mind. And then we use meditation. Okay? So what are the two parts of the souls that are we using here? The memory and the imagination. That's what we're going to be using. The key to meditation is the memory and the imagination. So when we read good books, holy books, it could be the Bible. When we go to Mass and we read the Missal, we follow along with the Missal. When we read spiritual writers, when we read um, uh, all, you know, uh, lives of the saints, all of them are, all that stuff is putting it in the memory. Because the imagination can only use what's in the memory. Okay? It can't just create out of nothing. Only God can create out of nothing. So anything that it imagines has to come from the memory. So the key to meditation is really the imagination and other parts of the faculty as well. But really, predominantly, the, the imagination, that, faculty, that part of the soul that we, we call imagination. So that's where the key is, okay? Um, <clears throat> as opposed to reading secular books or even worse, per, you know, things like pornography or evil books, okay, that then fuels our imagination, okay, which then causes us to do bad things, all right? So we want to minimize reading bad books or even secular books and fill it up with holy books, good books, they're about the holy, uh, holy books that then can feed our imagination. All right? The sanctify the mind is, part, is the memory. Sanctify the heart is the meditation, which uses the imagination. Okay? So I'm going to read you um, an excerpt from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is chock full of great stuff um, <clears throat> on meditation. And this is, this is coming from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's paragraphs 2706, 2707, and 2708. 
And it's a paragraph on meditation. Okay. It says, paragraph 2706, to meditate on what we read, okay, remember, read, so hence the sanctification of the mind is reading, to meditate on what we read helps us to make it our own by confronting it with ourselves. That is great. In other words, we're being self-reflective. When we meditate on what we read, so when we read a book, let's say we read just a, a historical book, a history book. Um, I'm a you know, military person. I used to read a lot of uh, World War II books you know, and all that battles. I was far removed from the battle. You know? So I can read it in a very disjoint manner. But if I got a good character in there, sometimes I would, contemplate, I would meditate and say, man, how would I feel if I was a Marine fighting in the Chozon Reservoir in Korea? Would I be able to endure the cold, the horrors? If I was a, you know, a Marine in Vietnam, that's meditation. Putting yourself in that situation and how you reflect to that. And that's what it's saying in a catechism. Confronting it with ourselves. Here, another book is open, the book of life. So what the catechism is saying is that not only are we reading a book, uh, when we read a book and then we add meditation to that book, we're actually opening up a second book. And they're calling it the book of life. We pass from thoughts to reality. <clears throat> this is so beautiful. <clears throat> Think about it. When we read a book and we meditate on it, what the catechism is saying is we pass from thoughts, just the thought of the, of, of the idea. Oh, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. That's what he did. It's a great thought. It's a great idea, great concept. It must have been very painful. You know, he suffered. When we meditate, we pass from just the thoughts to reality. We make the cross real, as if we were Our Lady standing there at the cross, weeping with her in sorrow. That's what meditation does. It makes the cross real. It makes the concept that he died for us real. That's what it does. And that's why God gave us imagination. Because the imagination is not evil. Yet, the one who controls the imagination, which is either the devil, one of the enemies of the soul, or ourselves. If we use ourselves, we need it to relate it to godly things. Not use our imagination just for secular things to be successful, but using our imagination to come closer to God. That's why God gave it to us. Okay? So, let me continue with the catechism. To the extent that we are humble and faithful, we discover in meditation the movements that stir the heart, and we are able to discern them. So in other words, the catechism is saying exactly what I'm saying, that meditation moves what we are thinking, what we think in our mind or you know, our memory, what we save in there, to our hearts. Because when we make the cross real, 
and not this esoterical fact. It becomes real to us and it stirs our hearts. All of us feel sorrow when someone is in pain. Okay? Just like when I use a magic, when I travel, sometimes I, I have pictures of my children and I, I look at them every once in a while. You know? And it's great to say, oh yeah, here's my children. Um, they have black hair. You know, she's eight years old. Blah, blah, blah. As opposed to, there's my daughter. I remember when I hold her. She comes and gives me hugs. And I can almost imagine her doing that when I travel. And my heart goes out to her. I, I miss and yearn that. So <clears throat> that's how we make our movements from the mind to the heart. And the catechism is saying that. Now, paragraph 2707, the next paragraph. Christians owe it to themselves to develop the desire to meditate regularly. Listen to this. To, to, to meditate regularly. As a Franciscan, <clears throat> as a uh, third order Franciscan, you know, one of our rules, we have to follow rules, is to meditate every day. Recommended is 30 minutes. 30 minutes of meditation. That's outside of doing all of our other prayers. 30. But I incorporate meditation throughout the day. It's not just a 30-minute period, but throughout the whole day. But, but, but the catechism is saying, develop the desire to meditate regularly. Here's the kicker. Lest they come to resemble the three first kinds of soil in the parable of the sower. That's what happens. You know, we know the parable of the seed. <clears throat> so there were types, different types of soil, right? The one was on hard um, hard soil that got trampled on because it was on a footpath. The other one was on rock. It couldn't take good root. And the third one was in um, soil that had weeds that choked and um, choked it. All right? And then the fourth was on good soil that produced fruit. What this is saying is if you don't meditate, you're going to wind up being like the three, the hard road that never penetrates the heart, <clears throat> the rocky soil that might penetrate a little bit to the heart, but then it, it doesn't have deep roots, so it withers away. Or like the, uh, uh, the thorns in which you might be excited in the beginning, but without regular meditation, you will eventually... Um, get choked by the worldly problems. Meditation. So, 2706 is showing us how meditation is uh, uh, takes it from the mind into our hearts. 2707 is saying how important it is. Okay? 2708, paragraph. Meditation engages thoughts, imagination, emotion, and desire. This mobilization of faculties is necessary in order to deepen our conviction of faith, prompt the conversion of our hearts, strengthen our will to follow Christ. Man. So what this paragraph is saying is, all right, so now we take meditation takes the, it from our mind to our hearts, and this is we need it so that we can be we don't lose our faith. And then 2708 is saying, wow. 
it's the way that we meditate is we use our imagination, our thoughts, our emotion, and desire. We mobilize them to what? Deepen our conviction of faith. That's one. Prompt the conversion of our heart and strengthen our will. Wow. That's what meditation does. Now, we don't have to meditate for a half hour, but meditate regularly. You know, a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there. You know, uh, this is what a spiritual director will help you do uh, or joining anything is to help you meditate. So the key to, to self-esteem is now meditation. So the first three questions, you know, what, uh, who am I, what am I worth, what is love, it's great to know them intellectually and in our mind. But what we need to do is our fourth step, which is meditation, and reflect that in ourselves. Am I really a child of God? Do I really believe I'm a child of God? Does God really love me that way? Does he want us to be with him forever in heaven? That's true faith. That's, true, that's a true believer. And once you're convicted on that, once it's in your heart, then nothing will stop you. You won't be afraid. You will do what God wills you to do. Whether it's having a family, whether it's being a priest, a religious, whatever. And you'll be rooting your self-esteem on something that you are. And there's nothing you need to chase after. Nothing. You don't have to be a great entrepreneur. You don't have to be a great, you know, uh, multimillionaire or scientist or doctor or, or whatever. Now, is that something that God calls you? Yes, and uh, that's great. You know, God called me to be an entrepreneur, and I became an entrepreneur to support my family. God called me, you know, to be in the military. But that's not something that that I have to prove to someone. That's not what defines me. So if I should fail at being an entrepreneur, because God might say, you know what, I decided I don't want you to be an entrepreneur anymore. He could say that anytime, and my company could collapse, just like Job. You know, we, were, we read last week the book of Job. And Job, actually, I read this this week, the book of Job is, you know, he lost everything, his kids. A flash, he lost his kids, his money, and even his lifestyle because he had bad health. So God can do that. But that doesn't, it's not what defines us. Satan would want you to think that. And that's what Satan was trying to do. Satan was kind of saying, well, God, the only reason why Job is dedicated to you is because, look, look, you know, he has all these kids and he's so successful. And so God said, you know what, test me. Go ahead, take everything that Job has. And so his kids were killed, his his uh, cattle and all his, his animals were killed, which was like money to them in those days. And yet Job didn't curse God. And then finally, Satan says, well, that's because I didn't touch him. If he were to suffer, he'll curse you. And God said, go ahead, let him suffer. And he suffered. Yet he still not suffered. He still not cursed God. Why? Because he knew those things didn't define him. No, I didn't do anything wrong. That's what Joe said. I know I am a good person. I know. 
And that's what it is. You are a good person. You are a child of God. And it's through our sins that we run away from that relationship from God. And if you could only see through sin what we are losing, we're losing everything when we sin. Meditate on that. So, I'd like to wrap this up, and um, we're on the hour, and let's uh, end this with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord Jesus, help us to understand how much you really love us, how much we're really worth, and how much we want to respond to that love back, how much that we must behave as we are, which is a child of God, a, a child that can say that you are our Father, that we can say that our Father is truly as you are our Father. We pray that all may realize this and have nothing but a sense of joy and love in their hearts as we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at Purified by Fire. Please visit us at purifiedbyfire.com. Like us at Instagram and Facebook at purified.fire. Sanctifying the world one soul at a time. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me cry now? Like an animal out in the wild I shout your name into the night Tell me can feel it too Feel the love like I do Only you can make it right Shout your name into the night We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.